0: Pints with Jack, Season Three, Episode Thirteen.
1: Till We Have Faces, Part One, Chapters Sixteen to Seventeen. Long Live the Queen.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David. And I'm joined by Matt, son of the father, Bush.
1: You are too kind. I try every day to be the son of the heavenly father. (laughs) Is this trying to make up for you calling me Matt (laughs) Swifty? Not at all. I had friends actually screenshot that and send it to me because I don't actually see anything you do. And they (laughs) died laughing.
0: Well, actually, I was brainstorming with Marie. Uh, We were having brunch after church and I came up with a whole list of them and they were all you know, fun ones. And, uh, and then I just put that one in there and it made Marie go, "Oh." <laughs> and I figured you'd be looking for me to, to be mean again. So I thought I would subvert your expectations.
1: Yeah. I actually thought of negative things with that. And so I need to, you did subvert my expectations. And also you seem to just very casually, whenever you talk about things that you and Marie do, just make your relationship sound so beautiful. I don't mean that in like a way that you're falsely doing it. It is. You're you're like, you know, just after mass at brunch, we were talking, and just what a what a great way to spend. I'm assuming a Sunday, after uh, late morning.
0: We have we have quite a tradition of going and getting acai bowls on the way home.
1: Ah, oh, those are so. Oh man, you're killing me, David. I'm sitting here
0: <laughs> in West Michigan. I was gonna say, if you're living in the wrong part of the country,
1: I know Acai! All right, well, with that, I'm just going to have to drink my tea then.
0: So what kind of herbal tea are you drinking?
1: (laughs) I don't actually know. It's the Yogi brand, and they they actually have names for them, like Stress Reliever. Well, this one just says um, Sleepy Time.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I will be driving fairly shortly, so I'm sticking to non-alcoholic beverage. I am drinking the Kirtland Sparkling Water, and it's the grapefruit flavor, which is actually my favorite.
1: Well, let me jump into the quote of the week here. This is from chapter 16, and this is the fox speaking to Orwell. Well, you have a secret from me, he said in the end. No, don't turn away from me. Did you think I would try to press or conjure it out of you? Never that. Friends must be free. My tormenting you to find it would build a worse barrier between us than your hiding it. There, do not weep. I shall not cease to love you if you have a hundred secrets. Quite different from Orwell. It is, which I really appreciated. We, If we, as a reminder, listeners, it's a good chance to give you a brief recap. Like last time, Orwell implored and forced Psyche to do something against her will by pretty much manipulating her love. Here we have an example where the fox does not force it. He recognizes that, you know what? You have your thing and I'm not going to force it out of you because that would make our friendship worse. So yes, exactly right. It's an example of, at least a small example of non-distorted philia storgia (laughs)
0: you're thinking of store gay but no in this case it's philia
1: okay (laughs) i like how i combined it both of them too, storgia (laughs) well with that well cheers cheers well this is our first time recording back after my ski trip it is indeed that's what matt's been up to i had a (laughs) i had a lovely time guys was out in colorado beaver creek it's an annual trip and that was partly why the last blog post was smaller than normal. I just pushed something together because I wanted to keep that going. And it was a blast. It was just a chance to escape, get on the mountains. For me, I can I have a hard time turning off and it's just a lot of just moving parts in life. And so getting on the mountains and going down those hills aggressively, just I get lost in it and I love it, but it is good to be back. I'm excited to be here. And I even got a chance actually while I was there to, I mentioned on our last one, I believe I'll be doing a talk this upcoming weekend, which by the time you listen to it, already have happened at Notre Dame on called further up and further in CS Lewis in the authentic life or journey to the authentic life, something like that. (laughs) So I woke up every morning in the first two hours before skiing, I was working on that and I'm quite pleased with the way it's coming together. If I say so myself. And that's still without any input from you yet, David. So, I mean, there's a chance for this to go to a whole nother level.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'll take a look at it probably tonight.
1: No rush, no rush. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to guilt you or anything.
0: Well, I actually also have my own talk to prepare, which I haven't actually really started yet, so.
1: You somehow pull these things together. I mean, listeners, David, now in fairness, he's got probably 15 talks up his sleeve. So it's a little bit, he could pull these things together and he's got so much knowledge. But this is my first deeply spiritual one, I would say. I've given lots of talks about business before. And so I've probably got 20 hours into this thing. No joke, I re—I didn't reread, but I went back through all of my Henry Nowen books, a few different Lewis books. I'm pulling all quotes. I mean, I'm starting with this huge list of every big theme that I've ever learned in life and then synthesizing it down. So it's been quite the process.
0: Well, I hope I'll get a little bit of time to work on mine this weekend. I might send you a draft.
1: <laughs> I'll listen. Usually what I always tell David is, because I don't, I can't offer near as much value as him. But I'm always like, okay, what's your big takeaway? I want to know that. Let's articulate that, and that's just always for me the big. I'm always a big picture guy.
0: Well, the only other thing that I want to talk about before we started is uh, we had a message from uh, one of our Patreon supporters. Because we launched Patreon early this morning, and I'm very delighted to say, lots of people have already started signing up. Yeah, thank you for that, guys. And one of our supporters, Rowdy Stillwell, uh, he recently had a son. He was born last week, and his name is Hayes Lewis Stillwell. Oh! And uh, he's named Lewis after a certain author that you might have heard of.
1: That is incredible.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to say, cheers, Hayes. May you have a long and happy life. And may you give glory to God every moment of every day.
1: Yeah. And for every listener, if you hear this in this moment, say, say a prayer for um, Hayes. Just just have a a beautiful life. That's amazing.
0: And Matt, you've got a cheers. Cheers.
1: Cheers. David's like, shut up and just cheers. But as a reminder for people, go check out the Patreon. You, You can actually access it through our website and, Uh, one of the tiers, well, a number of the tiers, if second and above gets you access to the Slack channel and it's already, we've already had some good conversation on it. It's people are excited about it. I know I'm I'm stoked to see where this can go. I've already, I've already made a decision. I need to turn off my notifications on my phone because I'm sitting here reading the book and I got, it just kept going (laughs) and I'm like, Oh my goodness, David, who are you talking to right now?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's kick things off for this episode. So here's my summary for chapter 16. Cue that music. The fox finds Orwell. Hiding her wound, she tells him that she went to the mountain and, while not explaining how she blackmailed Psyche, tells him of her plan with the lamp and the subsequent destruction of the mountain. The fox is horrified at her course of action, but doesn't press her to reveal the secret he knows she's hiding. Orwal decides to veil permanently from now on. She stands up to the king when he mocks her, and she devotes herself to learning, riding and fighting. Later in the year, the king sustains an injury which will lead to his death. The old priest is also near death. Bardia, the fox, Orwal, and the new priest, Arnim, hold council and settle on terms of mutual support between palace and temple. Orwal hears crying at the back of the palace. Thinking it's Psyche, she investigates, but instead discovers a strange man. This
1: is going to be, these next two chapters, we're going to be getting into some good stuff of quite a drastic transformation for Orwell. I mean, you want to talk about, I I don't know if I want to say it's like now she's building her false self more than ever, or if she was building it before, I couldn't decide this, but there's a lot that's going on here.
0: Yes. I think the pace of events starts picking up at this point in the book and this chapter in particular. We'll probably spend more time on, on chapter 16 before 17. 17, not a hot important things happen, but fewer things. But let's kick it off at the beginning. Oroel returns to the palace. She actually writes that she realizes she's avoiding the fox, and this does make her sad. But I thought it was particularly telling when she comes into her servant Pooby, who we met in the last episode, when Pooby sees Orow's wound, her self inflicted wound, she cries. I think this is yet more evidence that Orwell is actually loved. But Orowell she doesn't actually comment on any of this.
1: I also thought it was interesting. She's avoiding the fox, another example of, honestly, her her active desire to avoid truth. And maybe active is not the right word. Maybe it's subconscious, because I don't want to say that she consciously knows she is. But she's, she seems, she's too afraid to tell him because she knows she's done something wrong and she'll probably learn that there's more truth to this. And that made me just think of when he was doing that where Lewis talks about how as an atheist, you can't be too careful what you read. It's almost like when she's built this worldview, that's flimsy. She can't be too careful what she talks about because it might shatter. I was thinking about that.
0: Also, she hasn't been telling the whole truth as she's been going along having these conversations with the fox. And when you're not telling the whole truth or lying, you have to be much more careful about what you say. So you want to say the bare minimum. Yes. Whereas if you've always been telling the truth, you have nothing to hide. Uh, one little section in here when she was talking about Pooby tending to her wound and she said that uh, removing the dressing was extremely painful. It actually put me in mind of my trip to France when I was I must been 15 and I had a moped accident and I actually had to go to the emergency room and have stitches in my arms. And they made me take off the dressing every day and bathe my arm in iodine. Ooh! The most excruciating pain of my life.
1: David, I've been in the ER 17 times and under the knife probably 10, so you're not going to get me to feel bad for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm, I think it was more painful bathing bathing the wound in iodine and dismantling it. Anyway, that's kind of gross. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> the fox asks Oral where she's been, which is a reasonable question, and she hides her wound because she doesn't want to show him, And but she does tell him that she's been at the mountain and she realizes at that moment that the fox wouldn't have approved of what she's done. She writes, he would rebuke me for putting that kind of force upon Psyche. One of his maxims was that we, if we cannot persuade our friends by reasons, we must be content and not bring a mercenary army to our aid. It means passions.
1: That is a good example of the wisdom of the fox. I mean, sometimes I bash him. Sometimes he's he's got some wisdom. I mean, that that's a very good point. And Another example of Orwell just not listening to it. I mean, he's showing some examples of proper love here.
0: Yeah. And when they had this conversation, the fox says that he thought they were going to continue formulating a plan that morning. But Orwell rather curtly tells him that they stopped talking last night because he was tired. (laughs) And she's rather ashamed to realize that she sounded just like her father when she said that. (sighs) She's losing my love. She's still got poobies, but she's losing mine. But the fox is really sweet with her. He says, so that's my sin, said the fox, smiling sadly. Well, lady, you have punished it. But what's your news? Would Psyche hear you? You know, so he says, okay, yes, my bad. But letting, knowing that I let you down is enough punishment. And then he just wants to move on. And Orwell gives him scant information. She just tells him about the destruction of the storm and how she heard Psyche going off weeping on the south side of the mountain. And Orwell writes that she didn't tell him about the God because he would just assume that she was either mad or dreaming. This is just so frustrating. You've just had a personal encounter with the divine and you say nothing.
1: She's actively ignoring it. And also you sounded just like my old British roommate in New York. Frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) I love that.
0: Yeah, don't try try and do my accent. It's... (laughs) it's painful
1: we'd play this game all the time and he'd be like oh that's so frustrating (laughs) all right i'm
0: done okay that's good uh the fox he, he presses her for details about her conversation with psyche and she eventually tells him about the plan with the lamp and he's horrified he criticizes it greatly and he points out that this was inevitably going to lead to a bad end If you recall, the fox thinks that Psyche's husband is some mountain man, some brigand. And he says, well, either he would have taken her away to another lair or actually hurt Psyche. And he's worried that the weeping that Orwell heard might have been from a wound given to her by this guy. And in response, Orwell says, I could say nothing. For now, I wondered why indeed I had not thought of any of these things and whether I had never at all believed her lover was a mountainy man. She's completely reassessing everything, and she's wondering why she never thought about any of this.
1: I'm a bit intrigued because we're going to get later into, I actually think it'll be chapter 17, we start to see the wisdom of her, and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, so I'll just leave it at that. She seems to be quite wise down the road, and at least in certain matters, so it's fascinating how foolish she is right now.
0: Well, the fox presses her as to how exactly she had managed to persuade Psyche to agree to this plan, And she just said, I just persuaded her. And she skips over the fact that she kind of lied to Psyche by saying that the Fox and Bardia were in agreement. So she just says that she persuaded Psyche. And the Fox can clearly tell that she's hiding something. And this was the quote of the week that you read earlier, where he says that friends must be free. And basically that if he tried to force the truth out of her, it would only hurt their relationship. And he says that he will not cease loving her, even if she has a hundred secrets. And how opposite that is to Orwell's own attitude, particularly towards Psyche.
1: I couldn't believe what happened next year.
0: Well, they embrace and he leaves. And then she writes, I'd hardly ever before been glad of his going. Clearly her conscience is troubling her. But I thought too, how much kinder he was than Psyche. I, it's, wait, what? No,
1: no, no, I can't handle it anymore. I can't handle it. Orwell is losing me. I I put in my notes, I said, how can she for a second think Psyche is not kind and to the extreme? I'm dying right now. And the short answer is because of her possessive love and the fact that Psyche is not feeding back into it in the way that she desires. And so she feels betrayed and like part of her is being ripped out of her because of Psyche. But oh, I was so angry.
0: and she ends that section by saying that she never told bardia anything about what happened on the mountain and given his own personal philosophy of gods and men i leave them alone they leave me alone i think it's fairly unlikely he ever even asked
1: now it gets interesting enters in the veil stuff
0: yeah she makes the decision before going to bed and it's her decision to permanently veil i wasn't sure if you were going to choose this as the course of the week So, I'm going to read the whole thing. (laughs) You're welcome. Hitherto, like all my countrywomen, I had gone bareface. Side point, that was actually one of the original titles for this book, Bareface. On those two journeys up the mountain, I had worn a veil because I wished to be secret. I now determined that I would go always veiled. I have kept this rule within doors and without ever since. It is a sort of treaty made with my ugliness. There had been a time in childhood when I didn't yet know I was ugly. Then there was a time when I believed, as girls do, and as Batta was always telling me, that I could make it more tolerable by this or that done with my clothes and my hair. Now I chose to be veiled. Well, this answers a number of questions. Oh, it raises more for me. What do you think
1: it answers? Well, first, remember I said earlier, I couldn't tell if, she was, if before she was at her false self, and now this is some beginning of a true self, like this transformation we're going to see later in this book, when she takes on the queenship. Or... If this is her becoming more of her false self. And I think right here, the way it progresses her from didn't know I was ugly, thought I was ugly, but then maybe I could get beautiful to now I'm completely ugly. It just, it definitely shows she's descending into her her fullness of false self. The other thing too is when I read this, I forgot when it said she had veiled her way up to the mountain, she said she did that because she wanted to hide from the gods on her way up. And that was
0: a little bit earlier in this chapter. Was it the gods or... Other people in gloam. That's what I assumed it would refer to.
1: I thought I had written down that she said I was doing it to hide from the gods. But it it would not be the first time Matt has written something down incorrectly (laughs) as he goes through this. Assuming that is a correct statement. And I do believe to some degree we put that veil on because of the shame. In either way, I believe Lewis is communicating a lot of things with the veil and the veil is communicating that it's her fullness of her false self and sometimes we're too afraid to approach the world to approach, and let's, let's take this away from the book to approach God or Heavenly Father so we put this false self on and so I could, I think that's got something to do with it I now want to look this up while you start talking
0: <laughs> Well, you know what this really reminded me of? The latest Star Wars movies and in particular, Kylo Ren Now, just as an aside, I think they're terrible movies I think they did some real damage to Star Wars they were pretty, but ridiculous. Anyway, carry on. In those movies, Kylo Ren, he puts on his mask because he's trying to be something else. He's trying to be Darth Vader. And after he's humiliated in the middle movie, in the final movie, he it's remade. And he puts it back on again as he's trying to become this Sith Lord. He's trying to be this somebody other than Ben Solo. That actually connects a lot with mere Christianity
1: of let's pretend, except the wrong way, but then mm-hmm. notice that you can do it the right way. You, let's say you put this mask on of the Son of God and realizing when you do the Our Father, or in heaven, you're making yourself the Son right away, or a child, and from there you actually slowly become it.
0: And actually, if you remember, in Mere Christianity, Lewis actually tells the story of a man who puts on a, a, a mask that has a beautiful face on it, and over time... He actually becomes, his face becomes conformed to the shape of that mask.
1: All his stuff just constantly comes, weaves its way through all of his works. Yeah. So let's keep trucking.
0: A few days later, the king comes back from uh, the hunting party. And even this just shows that Orwell had more time. She rushed in her decision as to what to do and go back up the mountain and ruin everything. She had more time to play with. But anyway... A few days later, the king comes back and they'd only killed a couple of lions, but he seemed to have had a good time. There'd been lots of feasting and lots of drinking. And when he meets Orwell wearing her veil, Orwell writes, he shouted, Now girl, what's this? Hung your curtains up, eh? Were you afraid we'd be dazzled by your beauty? Take off that frippery. And Orwell writes, It was then I first found what that knight on the mountain had done for me. No one who had seen and heard the god could much fear this roaring old king. And we talk about Orwell's false self, but this is actually something good that came out of that experience because she has seen something far more terrifying than her father. And as a result, she now has a bravery that she didn't have before. She openly defies him and shows that she's unafraid and she ultimately wins the standoff. And she says... He never struck me again, and I never feared him again. And she said, on that day, I didn't move a single inch before him. Isn't it, I want to use the word ironic, that
1: when, when you go through a, a true transformation of the true self, and you, you enter into communion with God, and you receive your love from God, that you approach the world not worrying about what others think anymore, because you don't need your expectations of them to validate your false self, because you're rooted in the love of Christ.
0: It's like in Acts of the Apostles when the apostles say, we have to obey God, not men.
1: Yes. And so, ironically, she here is putting on her false self. And so, the opposite's happening. And, and, she, and it's out of fear of the gods more than like a rooted in the love of the God. So, it's for the wrong reasons, but it's the same result. She does not care now what others think.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I quite call it ironic, but it certainly turned on its head. Yes. But I think it does demonstrate what our masks can do. They can give us strength because we're hiding behind something that protects us.
1: That's a very good point. That's that's the temptation of the mass. And I think sometimes it's easy here as we're going through and watching Orwell do this to be like, why would you do this? But in reality, <laughs> that, that is exactly what you said. The masks are defense mechanisms. They prevent us from being hurt and wounded. And it's the wrong way of doing it. We should be getting that from the love of Christ and knowing that we're rooted in that identity. But this is the alternative. And honestly, it's quite tempting
0: sometimes. Mm. And Orwell writes about this developing relationship between the king and Bata. She doesn't think that it's romantic. Uh, What did you make of that?
1: Yeah, I got the sense of... um, She seemed to at least make it pretty clear that it wasn't romantic. Obviously, when you first think of it, you're like, I doubt that. But I was about to say, I trust Orwell. I don't. <laughs> so maybe it is.
0: And <laughs> When has Orwell yeah. ever been right? Yeah, but maybe they just found some camaraderie because, you know, they both like beer and wine. Who knows? Let's hope. Now, life in the palace continues, and Orwell tells us that she lives a very detached sort of life because she's expecting the wrath of the gods. She's expecting the, you know, the, the hammer to fall. But as time goes on, nothing seems to happen. And so... She does something that's incredibly symbolic. She goes to Psyche's room and packs away everything that reminds her of the sorrowful times. She burns a Greek hymn which Psyche had written to the god of the mountain. She also burns her recent clothes. It's only the childhood Psyche that's allowed to remain. And she locks the door and puts a seal on it. And she says that she also locked a door in her mind. And from then on, she never mentions Psyche. Uh, And all of this was very reminiscent of the Great Divorce with the doting mother and her reaction to her son's death. And Orwell also comments that there was less comfort than before of being with the fox.
1: Yeah, we need to unpack that just slightly here. I mean, this is an example of where, notice that she, she burns the Greek hymn, which <clears throat> that, that Greek hymn was about that pretty much that longing for the god of the mountain. And that's the thing that's been getting in the way of her Love or honestly for psyche between her and psyche. So there's a huge amount of symbolism there. And I like how you pointed out she wanted the old psyche, the childhood psyche to remain the one that she remembers, the one that she possessed. She's not ready to let go of it, of psyche. But then I do find very interesting how she locked the door in her mind as well. So she wouldn't let go of it, but she like suppressed it. And this is when you really start to see her false self being developed. She puts that in the past, and it's like, I'm putting on this new exterior, and I'm going forward. I mean, this is, this is a very turning point in Orwell's journey. She hit rock bottom.
0: <laughs> I think it's definitely not very psychologically healthy. No. Uh, one thing she also comments on is she says that she found less comfort than before in The Fox. And that reminded me of something else in The Four Loves, where Lewis speaks about how each person in a circle of friends can bring out what's lovely in the others. In The Four Loves, Lewis writes that now that Charles is dead, I think this is Charles Williams, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. It's almost like the absence of psyche means that Orwell doesn't get to enjoy the fox as much.
1: Yeah, Charles brought out another side of Ronald in this case. That's a very beautiful way of putting it. And that part of Ronald will not come out as much for Lewis without Charles. Mm. I like that a lot.
0: And so Orwell devotes herself to study, to fencing, and riding. And I wondered if she was—is she staying busy just to distract herself? Because remember what she said earlier about one of one of our defenses against the gods is this kind of graft, this hard work. I would say yes. But I'd also say, remember,
1: I pointed out many episodes ago that when she started this, it was the first time she was really ever complimented by someone like Bardia. And I I mentioned how this might be when you're searching for love and someone affirms you in a certain way, it becomes tempting for that to become your identity or your false self. So I think this is also just a, a place to go to for comfort. It's like, this is what she's good at. This is what she loved for. The world will love her for this and she knows it. And
0: right now she doesn't feel very loved even though she is. She writes this about it. My aim was to build up more and more that strength, hard and joyless, which had come to me when I heard the God's sentence. By learning, fighting, and laboring to drive all the woman out of me. So she regards part of who she is, the fact that she's a woman, as bad. And that's the thing that she wants to get rid of. And she goes on to say that sometimes at night, if the wind howled or the rain fell, they would leap upon me like water from a bursting dam, a great and anguished wonder. And she wonders what, what would be be happening to Psyche right now. And she then says, but after an hour or so of weeping and writhing and calling out upon the gods, I'd be able to set to and rebuild the dam. Just like this door that she's trying to shut in her mind in the same way she shut up Psyche's room, she's trying to dam up all of these emotions, this the, the guilt, all of her feelings that surround Psyche. She's turning off her vulnerability. Uh, that's...
1: She's doing what Brene Brown talked about. We've talked about it before. We talked about it in the YouTube video, the Skype session. That's what's happening right now.
0: It's basically like the story of Frozen.
1: I've never seen that. You've never seen
0: Frozen? No, I haven't. Oh my goodness.
1: I know the song though. Let it go.
0: Let it go. (laughs) It's all about trying not to feel. But speaking of feelings, one of the things that she comments on is her relationship with Bardia. This seems to change. She says that he used me and talked to me more and more like a man. And this both grieved and pleased me. What did you make of that? <laughs> oh, joy, Davidman. <laughs> yep, that's what I thought too.
1: <laughs> oh, and, and Patty Callahan just nailed that in Becoming Mrs. Lewis, the frustration she had when Lewis treated her like a man and she wanted to be desired.
0: He praised her for her manly virtues. Oh, and she asked him, how would you like it if I praised you for your womanly virtues? Today, you know what? That could go a long way for a man. Maybe. <laughs> but I think it's clear that Oral has developed feelings for Bardia. I think it's been in her subconscious. He was part of her fantasies in her delirium. So she clearly has some kinds of feelings for him. She's automatically on guard about his wife. And while she doesn't like being praised for and treated like a man... I think she's willing to take whatever she can get from him, whatever kind of affection he is willing to offer. The next big thing that happens is around midwinter, the king slips on the steps and he breaks his thigh bone, which sounds really, really painful. And he slips for, I think two reasons. One, he had probably been drinking. And the other reason is because one of the houseboys had been cleaning the steps with water and the water had frozen. Ah, it's coming back to frozen again. <laughs> Look at that. Maybe dude. Lewis is foretelling it. Who knows? Uh, and it's actually kind of appropriate because remember earlier that we found out that a lot of the young men or young children around the palace were actually his illegitimate offspring. Yes. But I actually thought when I was reading it, the king's reaction to the pain was actually a, a, very, a very vivid picture of a hurting person, in this case physically, in terms of he's deeply hurt, but he doesn't want anyone to come near him. And he shouts at people when they do it. And that's what we do when we're hurt physically and emotionally. We don't want people to go near the wood because it's painful. This
1: is the first example, too, of Orwell stepping up and taking charge. Yeah. We see her starting to act like a queen.
0: Yeah. She takes charge of the situation. She sends for this other priest, a man named Arnim, um, because apparently he knows of a good surgeon. And there's something kind of weird that happens because she writes that between the screams, the king kept pointing at me with his eyes and crying out, take her away. Take away that one with the veil. Don't let her torture me. I know who she is. I know. What did you make of that? Well, that was my question for you. <laughs> I quickly <laughs> teased that in because I got
1: nothing. <laughs> I well, knew you are about to ask me.
0: <laughs> well, the fox says, it's just Princess Orwell, your daughter. And the king says, well, that's what she says. But I know better. Wasn't she the one using red hot iron on my leg all night? I know who she is. I wonder if he thinks she's Psyche. I wonder if he has been tormented in the same way that Orwell has been tormented. Because he says, she was tormenting me all night. And it's at the night when Orwell is tormented by memories of Psyche.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that would be, that would be intriguing. The other thing I was thinking of, though, is maybe Lewis is trying to communicate here. When you go from putting on this new mask and false self... You you are true you can look completely like a different person. So I was thinking of when he the example Narnia of Eustace and then Eustace becomes the monstrous thoughts that he thinks he is and completely transforms into a dragon, uh, in the Narnia books. I was kind of thinking that here that she's she's so transformed, she has just put on this completely false self that he doesn't recognize her anymore.
0: But he thinks he thinks he knows who she is. She's somebody else. Yep. And I wondered, could this be another partial fulfilment of the god's promise that you too shall be Psyche? Maybe. Kind of like a Hamlet-esque ghost at the feast. I don't know.
1: We should ask what some of the schol- we should have to ask Lazo.
0: Yep. Yep, we have lots of questions for him. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that now. Mm-hmm. On the third night after all this has happened, there's a meeting in the corridor outside the king's room between Bardia, the fox, Oral, and Arnhem, this new young priest. And Arnhem says he's pretty sure the king's going to die. And Orwell is concerned that she'll be driven out of gloam. Like, once again, I wondered, is this also part of you too shall be Psyche? The same way Psyche was driven away. Uh, and the fox is also concerned about this. And then Arnhem adds that the house of Ungit is actually in a very similar situation, as their priest is also dying and won't last the week. And actually, he also calls the fox by his real name, Lysias. Uh, I went and actually looked it up. Apparently it means destroyer, which doesn't sound great.
1: (laughs) My very first thought was, has he been the one destroying the chance of Orwalt to see the experiential knowledge he's experiencing?
0: It it is a thought. It is a thought. Anyway, the priest laments that Orwald isn't married as he says, A woman cannot lead the armies of Gloam in war. I love Bardia's response. This queen can. And Orwell says, and the way he thrust out his lower jaw made him seem a whole army himself. Wow. That is impressive.
1: But what I was more drawn to in this scene that I want to highlight here was when they're discussing whether she can be queen or not, and Barty insists that she can do it without a man. It says that Arnon looks at her and she says, I think my veil served me better than the boldest continents in the world maybe better than countenance
0: countenance 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 is something quite different
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is like matt and um it's a david copperfield moment no this is an apostasy (laughs) moment or or, isn't that right what is what did i used to say apostolate (laughs) maybe better than beauty would have done so right there her false self this veil she's put up just got massively reinforced Mm-hmm. more than beauty she sought beauty her whole life and now she's saying here this is better
0: wow mm-hmm. and then after having agreed that the royal house and the temple must be united during this time of flux in order to keep Gloam together arnim says that there's one issue of contention which hasn't yet been resolved between the palace and the temple and it's a land dispute over an area known as the crumbles and Oral just gives it to the temple, but under the condition that Ungis guards be henceforth under Bardia and chosen by and obedient to the ruling monarch. Why do you think she did this?
1: Oh, I never actually asked the why. I just paid attention to how smart of a trade it was.
0: I mean, well, it gives her more power. Well, this would actually avoid the power play which happened when the old priest came to tell the king about the accursed. Remember when the priest turns up? And you have all of the temple guards there as well. Ah. Uh, well, if they're now under the control of the monarch, the power of Ungit is reduced quite considerably.
1: She is smart.
0: After their meeting's over, Orwell is sitting back and reflecting. And this, for me, was, was a key, the key transformation part in this chapter. She says, To be a queen, that would not sweeten the bitter water against which I've been building the dam in my soul it might strengthen the dam, though
1: i should have chosen that for the quote of the week (laughs) that's a good one because that's right there the example of the false self she knows it's not going to heal her but it's the next best it's going to strengthen the dam and suppress what she wants suppressed which is the, the the shame inside of her or the hurt or the wounds as we always talk about that ends up leading to the false self that's that's a big quote
0: and as she's thinking about this, Orwell hears the sound of a girl weeping behind the palace. And she rushes out crying for Psyche. And then she just realizes that it's the chains of a well. Gosh, it's
1: still there. The, the shame of what she did to Psyche. It's inside of her. She's trying to bury it. It's always going to be there.
0: Now, one thing that did occur to me is she is hearing the sounds of swinging chains. And they're swinging in the wind. And I did wonder, could this have been the doing of the god of the west wind and was he doing it to torment her or was it actually for a good purpose because he wanted her there to meet somebody that's by the well because orwell she sees a figure move in the darkness and when she catches him she hears this guy's voice a stranger's voice that says softly sweetheart take me to the king's threshold
1: i love how you think of things i don't think of I was focusing mainly on that scene as just the example of that guilt, the shame inside of her creeping back up. She's probably reading too much into it. You know how we all have that when we think something in our head and we project it out. I mean, that's why I saw that. But I think, I think you might be right. But then the question becomes, why? If let's let's assume it's for good, and he's trying to bring him out there. What's what's the motivation? God of the West Wind.
0: Well, for that we've got to look at chapter seventeen. <laughs> well played. The stranger discovered by Orwell is Trunia of Fars, the prince she wrote about earlier who is in a civil war with his brother Argon. Trunia has been separated from his army and asks for Glom's protection. She says that she can only shelter him as a prisoner. Upon hearing this, he tries to run, but injures himself and is taken captive. Orwell speaks to Bardia and the Fox, suggesting that she fight Argon in single combat for Trunia. This way they avoid the war with Fars, and make a friend in Trunia. Both are resistant to the idea, especially the fox, but heralds are eventually sent to Argon. Orwell realizes that her brief queenship has given her a respite from her mental tortures. Wired that the king will survive, she goes to his bedchamber, but returns comforted that she will indeed be queen of Glome. Well done, David. So. The stranger that Orwell discovers at the back of the palace is a real smooth talker. When she asks him who he is, he says he's a suppliant, and one who never let a pretty girl go without a kiss. Orwell's getting hit on here. (laughs) 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 Fortunately, she has a dagger, and uh, with that she manages to keep him at a distance. But David, do you know what a suppliant is? Yes, somebody that wants to uh, basically the protection of another. They have something to ask. He basically wants to see the king. Since you didn't ask me, I thought,
1: didn't look it up. And therefore, I was going to finally stump you. I looked it up.
0: (laughs) Well done, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, this suppliant, uh, he flirts outrageously with Oral. And this is kind of funny because this actually slightly disorientates her. Because she's not used to being spoken to in this way. He actually rather reminded me of Flynn from the movie Tangled. No, have I've seen not that? seen that, David. Oh my goodness. More of your movies you need to watch. <laughs> he's talking to the girl I says, okay, I'm going to have to smolder now. And he, he gives her a smoldering look. I think that's this guy.
1: Is that where you learned yeah. how to woo the ladies from, David? Tangled? Oh,
0: absolutely. Yep. Yep. Disney and Pixar movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he repeats that he's in need of an audience for the king. And Orwell points out that unless the king makes a miraculous recovery, she is now queen. The man, he identifies himself as Trunia of Fars. And as I mentioned in the summary, Orwell has written about him earlier in the book. He's in the middle of a civil war with his brother and his father. And what's happened is he hasn't actually been defeated, but he was beaten in a skirmish. And as he was fleeing, he blundered into gloam territory and he's now cut off from his army.
1: We see some of the wisdom of Orwell here. Because he, like we said, he's a suppliant and he has a chance to come in or would like to come in. But she points out that if we do that, we have to defend him. And so she's put in this dilemma. And so she says, instead, I love her cleverness. She thinks quickly now. There's like a drastic shift, by the way, with her. She goes, well, we could take you in as a prisoner. Says, well, you know what? Never mind. (laughs) So I love this scene because then he goes, runs away, doesn't get, get, get very far, trips on his ankle has to come back, literally says, bless the gods who created something like this ankle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The ankle of men.
1: The ankle of men. I just chuckled at that scene. And then essentially says, I am at your mercy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and Orwell, she calls the guards and she tells him to cover his face, significant, because she wants to keep his identity secret. And she's made sure that he's given food and drink, His his, his wound is tended. And he's eventually taken to the tower where Psyche was previously held. And then Oral, she goes and joins Bardi and the fox who are in the big king's bedchamber. And the fox tells her that Arna Mufans has crossed their borders and he's nearby with a large number of horses and they're looking for Trunia. And so Oral says, yeah, I know, he's actually in the palace. (laughs) And she takes them to the pillar room because she feels really awkward being around her father. And the three of them discuss what they're going to do. And they're all on the same page. They realize that if if they can get Trunia back to his army, he'll most likely win the war. And nobody seems to think much of Argon. And uh, they would actually prefer Trunia on the throne of Fars, uh, particularly if they can help him out now when he's in real trouble. And they agree that they're in no shape for a war with Fars, so they can't do open warfare. And so this is when Orwell suggests that they have someone fight Argon in single combat for Trunia. And Argon has previously been called a coward, and so there's absolutely no way that he can turn this down, particularly if his opponent is going to be a woman. So she suggests herself. Yeah, this was, first of all,
1: again, this, this wisdom of Orwell continues to stun me. But yeah, here there's a pretty powerful line where Bardius says, Oh lady, lady, it's a thousand pities they didn't make you a man. And he spoke it, I love this line, he spoke it, as kindly and heartily as could be. and <laughs> She goes, as if a man dashed a gallon of water in your broth and never doubted you'd like it all the better. Yeah. Cold water. Cold water. Yes. Thank you. That's key to this actually.
0: Yeah. Neither of her advisors are particularly keen on her doing this. They think it's a very smart plan. Yes. So the fox reacts very badly because it monstrous against all custom. And an oral actually reveals that she hadn't actually ever told the fox about her learning to fence. But she does give a very good argument that the fox can't really refute. She makes the point that her throne is not yet secure. But if she does this, then the people will love her. And she writes, I can see right into his heart, for I knew he now implored me with the same anguish I had felt when I implored Psyche. The tears that stood in my eyes behind my veil were tears of pity for myself more than for him. What? (laughs) She realizes the hell he's going through, and so she's crying for herself?
1: Classic Orwell. In Kavada sensei.
0: Yeah. Either way, heralds are sent to Argon with the terms of the duel. And this, we then come to the final part of the chapter where she has a little bit of time to reflect. And she starts talking about the queen as opposed to herself. It's almost like the role that she is, that she's fulfilling is, is a separate person. She says, I looked back on the things the queen had done and wondered at them. Did that queen truly think that she could kill Argon? I, as Oral, as I now saw, did not believe it. This fits actually a lot with
1: what I've been talking about here. This shock of the difference between her and Orwell. It's almost as Lewis is now naming this and pointing this out because it's surprising. This is a completely different person. And at first, I kind of thought, all right, Lewis, did you make a mistake here? I mean, shouldn't you have at least developed how she gained some of this wisdom? how this 180 happened. But I think he's here trying to make a point that this is a marked difference intentionally.
0: Yeah. And you can still see the old Orwell because as she's thinking about this, she wonders, well, what if I go into this fight and my courage fails me? And then she starts imagining what other people would say about, oh, how how brave Psyche was when she, when she went to her death, but this other sister. And Orwell says that, you know, she shall not, she says, Psyche... She's never had a sword in her hand in her whole life. Never done a man's work in the pillar room. Never understood. Hardly ever heard of a of state. A girl's life. A child's life. You see how her love for Psyche is something really twisted. Yeah. And she's actually wondering if she's sick again, because it sounds very familiar to those kinds of ravings when she was in her delirium. She is kind of sick in a, in a metaphorical way. Mm, not an exact way. <laughs> And she looks on this jewel that, well, this might be the means that the gods use to kill me. But she decides that, regardless, if, if she dies or if she doesn't, at least until she does this fight, she's going to be the best queen that she can. And she says she was going to be queen, not out of pride. She says, I was taking to queenship as a stricken man takes to the wine pot, or as a stricken woman, if she has beauty, might take to lovers. She's going to this role, to this role of queen, for something that she can get out of it. She says it was an art that left you no time to mope. If Orwell could vanish altogether into the queen, the gods would almost be cheated. I'm amazed
1: what happens at the end here when she goes to the king.
0: Yeah, it takes a bit of a a dark turn.
1: I'm curious your thoughts on it because she goes to see the king and because she's worried that he might not actually die. Uh-huh, which that will jeopardize, and that makes sense to me, because that's going to jeopardize this entire false self she's put on. She's she's enjoying embracing this queenship. This is protecting her. This is, it's said right there, this is this is important to her. And so if he doesn't die, there goes the most important part of her. So she goes, we'll makes sure this is happening, um, even thinks of maybe killing him, but what I found was fascinating, he doesn't, she doesn't, by the way, is that she said she saw the terror in his eyes. Why is he so afraid of her with the veil on? I mean, this is going back to what we were talking about earlier, but, like, this guy is full of fear. And I don't know if Lewis is trying to communicate that sometimes these, again, I go back to that Eustace example where he turns into the dragonish thoughts. Lewis literally writes he turns into the dragonish thoughts, becomes a monster. The false self is like a monster. It can come across a little pretty, but I don't know if Lewis is just trying to communicate that here.
0: I'm not entirely sure. I still think it might be that his own conscience is being haunted. And I think also we get to see Orwell enjoying something of the power that she now has over a man who has scared her and abused her most of her life.
1: Yeah. Actually, you know what? Imagine you hurt someone, you bullied them, you shamed them, you made them feel ugly, and then you were powerless in front of them and they're looking. I guess I'd be pretty afraid. (laughs) Maybe it's as simple as that.
0: Hmm and Orwell says I looked again at his face terrified idiotic almost an animal's face a thought of comfort came to me even if he lives he will never have his mind again I went back and slept soundly wow the pace is picking up not quite sure where this is going (laughs) how many more chapters to the end of this part this book Uh, we are we've just finished chapter 17 and I think there's 21 chapters in the first part
1: okay so, 18 and 19, then 2021.
0: 20, yep. Two more episodes to go, and then we'll get Andrew in and he can explain everything to us. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: It's been a fun
0: journey. Yeah. So, listeners, if you'd like to uh, do the reading ahead of time, it's chapters 18 and 19 next week when we'll be going further up. In further in. Cheers. Cheers.